Welcome to Grace Presbyterian Church. My name is Justin Ellis, one of the ruling elders here. And we want to welcome you to this uh, study of the book of James, as most of you all know since you've been here. But we're going to be continuing our study of the book of James, uh, first chapter, in particular, verses 12 to 19. Uh, But before we begin, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom this morning as we study your word. Father, we pray that you would, by your grace, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts, that we may grow in knowledge and understanding, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, and that, uh, that our minds might be renewed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a, as a quick review, last week, uh, John covered uh, some really important details about airplanes. That's, that's what I, I recall. No. Uh, just to, to catch us up for the context of, of what we've been covering, Joe, a couple of weeks ago, covered... Um, counting it all joy with various trials and tribulations. And then last week, John covered, as James discusses, how we might count it joy uh, applying wisdom and uh, pointed out several helpful things. For instance... Experience is not the same as wisdom. Uh, Age does not equate to wisdom. And it was kind of interesting for those who were here on Sunday evening uh, how much the Sunday school lesson and and John's teaching tied in with what we heard in our sermon about King Uzziah, his great pride, and the fact that even though he, he grew older, uh, his heart grew cold toward the Lord, and uh, he no longer pursued wisdom. So, John highlighted a prescription for us from Scripture to pray for wisdom, uh, to pray for help from the Holy Spirit, and to meditate on God's Word and, uh, and remember Jesus' words to abide with him uh, in, in the midst of our trials. And this morning we're, we're going to continue with this thought uh, picking up in verse 12. So let me, let me read verses 12 to 19, the first part of verse 19. Again, James 1, 12 to 19. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. So as we, as we study this section, there are three things that I'd like to concentrate on here. First, adopting a heavenly mindset or, or mindedness. Uh, the next will be covering uh, what is referred to as the temptation cycle. And then thirdly, looking at God's character very briefly. So first, adopting a heavenly-mindedness. This first section begins with, with encouragement from James. Uh, in fact, he, he delivers a promise to us and says that we will be blessed if we remain steadfast in the midst of trials. And I, I appreciated John's comments last week, if I get the quote right. He said, instead of praying for wisdom out of our trials, we should pray for wisdom in it. Um, and as we, as we begin our study of this, this particular section, there are three terms that stand out to me uh, that I'd like to look at more, more closely. Uh, the terms are steadfast, blessed, and crown. So what is steadfast? It means to be fixed in direction, firm in purpose, resolute, which I think is a great word. Firmly established. And it's the thing that we desire, right? We want to be like the house built on a rock, not on the sand. Uh, we want to be on that firm foundation. That's the thing that we sing about. And, and next, looking at blessed and the promise of blessing. When we, when we see this word, we think of Psalm 1 of the man who is like the tree planted by streams of water whose roots go deep. Whether the seasons change or the elements change, this tree will continue to bear fruit. And then we have the example of the ultimate blessedness in Revelations 22:14, which says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates where we as saints will enter into eternal rest, the ultimate blessing. And then finally, uh, the way in which we will be blessed, at least in this section, according to James' words here, are we will be blessed by a crown a crown of life. 
So just quickly, I wanted to look at examples of the use of crown in Scripture. And it's used throughout Scripture both literally and metaphorically as well as physiologically. Uh, But there are many literal examples, such as when Jehoiada placed the crown upon Joash's head, as we recently heard in 2 Chronicles 23. Or metaphorically, it signifies the pinnacle of honor. Proverbs 12, an excellent wife is a crown. My crown's not here right now. Proverbs 16, where gray hair is referred to as a crown, a crown of glory gained by a righteous life. Proverbs 17 describes grandchildren as the crown of the aged. And then we see that a crown is used as an example of, of a blessing to God. God's people are like the jewels of a crown shining on his land, according to Zechariah 9. And the only crown mentioned in as we do this quick survey through the through scripture, the only crown mentioned in the gospels is the crown of thorns. In the epistles, Paul often uses the term crown, to refer to believers. They are his crown, my joy and crown, he says in Philippians or in 1 Thessalonians, his crown of boasting. It's you, believers. And then we have a couple of examples of eternal or otherworldly crowns such as 2 Timothy, the crown of righteousness to all who have loved his appearing, or in 1 Peter, an unfading crown of glory for faithful elders, something uh, the the opposite side of of some of the uh, great warnings that are given to elders. And then we have an example in Revelations 2 of the crown of life, just as we see here in in James, and that's given to those who are faithful unto death. But as, uh, as is often said, the reward is important, but so is the journey, right? Is, is this giving a lot of noise or something? I'm hearing feedback here. Um, we must never lose sight of the thing that brings us to the reward to the crown, um, and of course, John 17, which we just covered in our reading and evening worship, said that eternal life is, is knowing God. So if, if, if the crown of life, if we receive a crown of life, it's, it's knowing God. That's, that's the real blessing. But, uh, but the thing that brings us, that delivers us to that reward of a crown is remaining fixed on him who delivers us and hearing his voice. The double-minded man who looks to God plus anyone or anything will not receive that reward.
again, as John mentioned last week, Peter took his eyes off of Jesus as he was walking on the water and began to sink. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in delighting in God's word day and night. Well, as, as we've been considering receiving a crown, being blessed, it's all in the midst of trials, and I thought it might be helpful for a moment to consider various types of trials. As we go back to verse 2 uh, of this chapter, James refers to trials of various kinds. Uh, so to keep it simple, I'd like to look at, just consider two different categories, extraordinary and ordinary trials. So when we think of extraordinary trials, we have examples that we look to. In fact, uh, we, we often refer to biographies of great Christians that are an encouragement to us. We think of Polycarp's death uh, and his great uh, courage, even as he was facing death. We think of Luther's great speech, here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, obviously in the face of, of great trials while he was facing excommunication, being falsely accused of heretical doctrine. And uh, I don't know if you've ever tried being accused of false doctrine and or facing excommunication, but uh, I tried it one time. Eh, I didn't like it. <laughs> um, and then obviously we have plenty of biblical characters. King David fleeing Saul or fleeing Absalom, and, and we have his words in the midst of trial. Uh, Psalm 64, while he was fleeing Saul. Psalm 3, while he was fleeing Absalom. And it testifies to his faith and to him remaining steadfast, even in the midst of a great trial. Uh, or how about the man who was born blind in John 9? You may remember the story where it begins with the disciples saying, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents? And Jesus, I think, opens up a window into heaven. to give us a glimpse of, of God's eternal purposes. And he declares that
the man was born this way, quote, that the works of God might be displayed in him. And later, I think it's, uh, it's indicative of, of the fact that God has a sense of humor um, where we see this man who had been blind and a helpless person, certainly in that society, looked down upon. And, and now all, the, all of a sudden he's standing in front of this great council of, uh, of the leaders, the Jewish leaders, who are responding and, and engaging in him in the most smug manner. And he says, uh, with great eloquence and boldness, I, all I know is I was blind and now I see. Uh, you guys seem to be the ones that uh, that have an issue. Um, do you think he received a crown of life? But as we as we're considering suffering and trials, think about. Let Jesus' words sink in for a moment. See, I always know it's going to happen at some point when I'm doing these lessons. I just don't know when. I apologize. Um, if, if, we, if, we, if we consider kind of the weightiness of Jesus' words. He says that this man was made blind for all his life up to that point. In order to reveal God's purpose and glory. Now there are plenty of folks who have been born, born blind, um, but I'm not sure if any have displayed God's glory the way this man did. But, but again, something for us to consider as we think about suffering. And I would argue that if, if, if we could see as clearly in the midst of our suffering that this is what was going on, that it would make it a lot easier, I think, in many ways. Um, and I guess that's an obvious question for application for us. Do we see our suffering in this way? I would argue that in many ways, you know, uh, I think every everybody's understanding of suffering is different, you know, and what what suffering is is uh, is relative. You know, the the worst thing that a person's ever experienced is the worst thing they've ever experienced, um, and for one person that may be far more horrendous. Um, 
but but it seems to me that as believers that in the midst of great suffering it often is like a bullhorn from the Lord to us and and maybe sometimes it is more apparent that God is is working in us for his good for our good and his glory um, so I would call I would call suffering like this to be um, extraordinary. But what about the ordinary, uh, the the mundane trials? I'd like to discuss those for a couple of minutes as well, because I think, uh, at least for me, those are the ones that I repeatedly fail. So the ordinary, just again, what's a trial? It's the act of trying or testing or putting to the proof. And we've we've just kind of been comparing the difference between extraordinary and ordinary, discussing the fact that extraordinary might be might be a little I don't know if easier is the right word, but I think we face them less. And uh, but the ordinary, at least due to due to my dullness, I would argue often um, expose my my weakness and sinfulness. Um, as an example, a couple of weeks ago I was thinking about this lesson, and I was uh, you know meditating on. God's word, and I think I'm realizing that driving is a trial for me. Um, and I was caught up into the third heaven, thinking about God's word, and then somebody pulled in front of me in the fast lane, driving slow, and I don't like that. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Simultaneously thinking of the goodness of God, I was speaking out loud things like moron, idiot. Um, And obviously not remaining steadfast in the midst of a trial. So our prescription is, as John mentioned last week, praying, praying, for wisdom, praying for the Holy Spirit to help us abiding in Christ. And and then I think one thing, as I've been contemplating, meditating on, on, on this lesson, this passage, is obeying. <laughs> um, so I've tried to, like, not say stuff <laughs> when I'm driving by myself, so, uh, but it's something, something for us to consider. Another thing for us to consider is we don't know this normally. This is not natural. James wouldn't be sharing it with us if we knew it. So he's telling us because it's different and Again, I think 
it's indicative of a heavenly mindedness that, that we must adopt in order to, uh, to be obedient. All right, so let's move on to, uh, to, to verse 13 here where James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. I, I don't know about you all, but if you've, if you've studied James before, um, I, I've always found this to be a little bit of, a, of an odd transition, where in, in a lot of ways what he's been saying prior to this has all been very encouraging for the most part, and then there's kind of like this threat, you know, don't you dare say... Um, almost like like he's chastising us. But I, I think uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who, who wrote the commentary that we're using for this this lesson, for, the, for our study, uh, refers to this as a bridge. And if we look back at uh, verses 2 to 4 of having joy and trials and connecting it with his pronouncement of blessings for us, then you, you ask, why is there this shift? Uh, it seems in many ways that what James is doing is countering our natural instinct, our instinctive response. And, and if, if we think back, you know, Adam and Eve took the fruit, they ate it, they sinned against God. And what did Adam say to God? Well, that woman you gave me. She's the one. I think it's natural that we are under trials, but at times maybe give in and, and sin and then blame God. And so with this, James leads into what to what Dr. Dr. Ferguson refers to as the is the temptation cycle. So let's let's continue our reading here with uh, verses fourteen to fifteen, which is I think quite a uh, a weighty warning for us. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So again, Dr. Ferguson refers to this as the temptation cycle, and he kind of provides his own titles, if you will, for the various stages of the, of the cycle, beginning with deception, attraction, preoccupation, conception, and subjection. So again, deception, you don't necessarily see. Deception, that's not in verses 14 to 15, but it's presupposed. It's, it's what Satan's intent is here, often to put us in these circumstances. It's his ultimate objective, just as he did in the garden, to deceive Adam and Eve into thinking God's not really good. 
And then, as, as Dr. Ferguson states, the temptation to sin involves a blurring of the mind of, to reality, uh, which makes us think of Romans 1 and, and the fact that sin affects our reason. The more sinful someone is, the less reasonable they are. In our Christian pilgrimage, as we grow in sanctification, as we become more like Christ, as our minds are renewed, we ought to be more reasonable. We ought to think more clearly. Now, obviously, there are issues of the, of the body that sometimes impact that. But in terms of our, our reasoning, it, it should actually improve as we, as we draw nearer to God. And the counter to this deception is to not see with our physical eyes, but with our spiritual eyes. N next, after deception, we move to attraction. It's an, an external thing. It's something outside of the person. The ESV uses the term lure, which makes you think of fishing, catching a fish. As a uh, Again, referring to Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, you know, the objective is to catch and capture a naive fish with a shiny object hiding the vicious little hook. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has made all things beautiful in its time. There are a lot of shiny objects in the world. And an interesting note, because i got to bring up one of these examples. When I was going through training for flying, and you're looking for bad guys out there, bandits, uh, the training was to fix your eyes somewhere out in the distance and allow your eyes to pick up the movement on the periphery. So... In some ways, in our fallen state, we're inclined to pick up and be attracted by objects, shiny objects that might uh, be a lure for us. I think, uh, though the, the, the statement, idle hands or the devil's workshop, is not a biblical statement, I think it, it, it is brought together from some biblical concepts. Um, Proverbs 10, 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And Ephesians 5, 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So I think there's something to be said about, uh, about the idea of, of attraction and how we might protect ourselves. Next is preoccupation. Now the thing that was external becomes internal. Desire is conceived. A thing transitions in our hearts from something that we see and it becomes something that we need or we desperately want, which could be good things. 
as, a, as an opinion for young parents, I think this may be an argument to say no sometimes <laughs> if all things are equal. Might be good. After preoccupation comes conception. This is the, the coalescing of desire and opportunity. Sometimes we have desire without opportunity. Sometimes we have opportunity without desire. This is where those two things come together. And I think you know, the, the mind goes to examples like David and Bathsheba. Tragic example in Second Samuel 11 in the King James it says David tarried creating an opportunity instead of being out in the fields fighting. He tarried and it happened and he saw and David sent and took and the woman conceived. And I think a lot of this does not make sense if we don't have a right perspective on sin and how sin affects man. You know, if, if we think, if we have the idea that sin is merely a verb, when I lie, I sin. And then prior to that, there was no sin. I think, uh, I, don't, I don't think we understand this passage as well. In, instead of thinking, I think, more correctly that, well, you do, you do sin when you lie, but, but sin is often a fruit of uh, what's like a poisonous seed of some horrible plant that's buried in our hearts. And if given the right nurturing and care, it might sprout up to kill us. Or, or those around us. And I think there are many examples of this in Scripture, whether it be Romans, 5, Romans 7. Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. In Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then finally, subjection. That's the, the final link in the temptation cycle. And as a, it's almost like a spider weaving her web to catch and kill her prey, where sin when it's fully conceived, brings forth our destruction. And going back to the example of David, Uriah was unjustly killed. The child born to Bathsheba dies. God declares judgment. The sword shall never depart from David's house. More death. And God will raise up evil against David even out of his own house. And I imagine you all can think of examples 
by God's grace, let it not be us, but we can maybe think of examples of people that we know. Uh, I just recently learned of a, a family friend. In fact, I, arguably, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for this person. Um, and the impact that they made in my family, leading someone in my immediate family to the Lord. And yet, they were under a trial. And in the midst of the trial, they were allured and they fell. And then that, that fall became public, maybe by God's grace, for the sake of their own soul. But 30 years later, the ripple effects are destroying families, extended families. So, what do we do with that? As an, as an effective counter, we see that James tells us in response to this, be not deceived. Be aware. And, and what is it that we ought to be aware of? Well, among other things, God's goodness. If only Eve had possessed James' thinking in the garden. In many ways, it seems like James is talking to Eve here. And he moves from the temptation cycle, this, this very loving warning of not being deceived to what seems like an odd transition again, in some ways, of talking about God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And you, you might say, well, what, what, why, why is he doing this? If we look at every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, I think it, it causes me to think of Luke, Luke 11, where Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good, good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the, the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Moving on to coming down from the Father of lights, light enables sight. Without light, we stumble in the darkness. Recall... Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. With whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning, James is pointing to God's immutability, uh, which is one of those incomprehensible incommunicable attributes that we 
can say some things about what it's not, but we can't really say what it is because it's beyond our, our knowing. Uh, to quote one theologian, um, a modern-day theologian on the topic of immutability, actually in a tabletop, table talk article from 2020, Stefan Simonin says, quote, the idea of immutability is very hard for us to understand, perhaps more so than the idea of eternity or infinity. How can ever-changing creatures such as us who live in an ever-changing reality grasp the idea of changelessness? The fact that every cha everything changes has always been a truism. Change is here to stay, quote, end quote business analysts proclaim, quote, we live in times of change, end quote, lazy journalists write. As if there are ever, as if there ever were a time in history that was not a, quote, time of change. None of this is particularly new. After all, 2,600 years ago, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously proclaimed, quote, everything flows, end quote but God does not change. And then moving on uh, back to James here, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. The King James uses the term begat, and I think that may be helpful for us here because it, uh, the idea of being begotten, it points to God's kindness to us, of saving us, of adopting us and making us his children. Leading to that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here James compares Christians to first fruits. What's a first fruit? Well, in family worship when we were studying Leviticus, which people might question why we would be studying Leviticus in family worship, but uh, Adelaide could probably tell us what first fruits are. Uh, Leviticus 23 is where God tells Moses, quote, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheep of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. So the first fruits of a harvest were an offering to God that God desired. As Matthew Henry says, James is telling us that we are, quote, God's portion and treasure and a more peculiar property to him as the first fruits were. And then finally, know this, my beloved brothers. Now, most likely when you read this passage in your Bibles, this is in the next section, and you might be wondering why we are including it here. Well, one reason is because, well, I was given this as a topic to teach, but this is how, uh, this is how Dr. Ferguson also uh, breaks it up. And uh, I think the argument that's made here is that in light of all the great things that we've just been told, in, in light of... These, these wonderful teachings about being heavenly-mindedness. It's just kind of a punctuation to this section where 
James says, know this, my beloved brothers, in a, uh, a familial, loving way. In closing, in these handful of verses, I think James makes a, a defense of God's goodness. Are we facing various trials? Remain steadfast, for God is good. If you are tempted to sin, do not believe God is tempting you, for God is good. God begat you, and He adopted you as a treasured possession, because He's good. James encourages and warns us not to fall prey to the deceitfulness of Satan as Eve did in the garden when she was enticed to believe that God was not good. In the section that we've covered here, we're back in the garden with Eve or in the wilderness with Jesus as he faces temptation. James is pointing out a better way by adopting a heavenly mindedness, by keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, trusting in His Word. We will see our trials in a, in a different light. When conflict arises within our families, when our friends leave us or betray us, when we unexpectedly lose loved ones, lose loved ones, when our bodies fail us. Christ suffered all these things on our behalf. So may we trust that, that God is good. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you once again that we might gather together in your name and that we might study your word. Father, please help us to have this heavenly mindedness. Help us to see that as we face various trials, that Father, you are sovereign over all things and you work all things according to your glory and, and for our good. Father, we pray that you would now go with us, that you would Bless and redeem our worship this morning. Uh, let your word be proclaimed and let the, the name of Christ be uplifted. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.